Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Neil Hopkinson, the VP of Additive Manufacturing at Stratasys. 20 years ago, Neil was named as the lead inventor on the patent application of high-speed centering, filed by Loughborough University in the UK. Granted in 2005, Hopkinson continued to work on the development of the patented 3D printing process through his roles in academia, while also licensing the technology to several commercial entities. One of those entities, a business owned by Tsar, was fully acquired by Stratasys in 2021. During that year, high-speed sintering became selective absorption fusion, as Stratasys introduced a H350 system to market. Throughout the episode, Neil details the R&D journey of high-speed sintering, the fundamentals of the technology, and how an emphasis on consistency forced a name change. He also provides insight on the acquisition by Stratasys and which markets are being targeted with the technology. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tstmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TST Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Neil, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. Um, I think we may as well start at the beginning, given you're the inventor of a technology that has been about, I don't know, 20 years in the making at this point. So why don't you tell us what motivated you to carry out the initial research that led to the invention of, you know, what was once high-speed sintering, or I guess it's still high-speed sintering, and, and has now evolved into selective absorption fusion. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks. It's a pleasure to take part, Sam. Um, really, my, my first uh, role within the additive manufacturing industry, or in fact, the rapid prototyping industry, as we called it back in the day, was in 1996. And uh, I, I did a PhD where we were using um, stereolithography parts as injection molding tools. And so what that did was it gave me exposure to 3D printing in the form of stereolithography and understanding uh, the kind of freedom that that provided from a design perspective, but at the same time, you know, a much higher cost than traditional processes and comparing that with injection molding, which has you know certain restrictions when it comes to the designs, but is extremely efficient from a cost perspective. So I, I looked at that freedom of 3D uh, printing and and cost point of injection molding and i guess my career uh, raison d'etre has been to try and bring those two advantages together and i'm pleased to say with with this you know printing infusing approach i think we've come a long way in order to achieve that particular objective so when you um completed that phd um what would you what would you say were the the key findings um of that of that research and then what were the next phases of the research after that? Yeah, so so to clarify, the, the, the PhD itself was was into using stereolithography for, in, for injection molding, uh, using stereolithography parts as injection molding tools. Um, actually, the key research that really uh, 
you know, saw the, the birth of uh, printing and fusing technology um, was my first piece of academic work after I've completed my PhD, where um, I worked with my supervisor, uh, Professor Phil Dickens, and we were working with um, some automotive supply chain companies um, who were looking at alternative ways of doing molding. And they had a project that they called Z-Tool. Um, in fact, it was Delphi Automotive. And, and they, they wanted to ask the question, what if we printed parts instead of molding them? Now, that was a very audacious question to ask back in 1999. So uh, Phil and I went to look at the economics of this and started breaking it down. And um, we compared a number of different rapid prototyping technologies, as, as we referred to them then, and looked at the cost point um, of making those parts by those technologies compared with injection molding. And what it came out was, as you'd expect, if you're making one or two parts, then it's cheaper to print the part. If you're making a million of them, then it's cheaper to mold the part. And the question was, at what production volume did it make sense to go from printing to molding? And what really surprised me was um, laser sintering, a technology that I hadn't had any involvement with at all at that point. Um, because you could stack parts in three dimensions and, and you could get, for example, a very small little L-shaped lever that we had that Delphi Automotive produced. It was a complicated shape, which made the mold, the injection mold expensive. And the part was small, which meant that the, the printed part didn't cost so much. And to my astonishment, it came out at a number of 14,000 parts i.e. it was going to be cheaper to print 14,000 parts than to mould them. Now, I'd, I'd expected that number to be 300, 400. So when it came out at 14,000, you know, first of all, I had to check and double check my figures. You know, you know surely I'd made a mistake, but I hadn't. Um, and that really was a turning point for my career. That was the point at which I thought, OK, manufacturing is, is for real through 3D printing. My my first degree had been in, in, in uh, manufacturing engineering. So that was a, you know, a great moment for me that I thought, OK, genuinely 3D printing and manufacturing are going to be the same thing. And um, so, yeah, I, I uh, th that was a, a key moment in understanding the economics and, and really ultimately to me, it's the economics. Um, are the key driver to making a, a technology successful. So around that time, kind of late 90s into the into the early 2000s, what what was your awareness and knowledge of 3D printing or rapid prototyping as an industry and the I guess the other technologies that were that were out there at that time? Yeah, so I, uh, I had a pretty reasonable understanding um, of the technologies. It was much easier in those days. There's only really four technologies that were out there. So it was much simpler. And the industry was was tiny in comparison to where it is now. Um, so it was far more manageable to have a reasonable understanding of the different technologies at that point. Um, but as I said, you know, the powder bed fusion um, uh technologies were new to me um, when I conducted that economic uh, uh, analysis. So I then started looking more deeply into, into laser sintering. Um, and it, but even then, I felt a certain frustration that the technology had been developed for prototyping. You know, we were still back in 1999, 2000, 2001, referring to the industry as rapid prototyping. Um, and I did feel that we needed to you know, really build on what was there and, and change things um, in order to, to move into manufacturing. And, and that's really when I had the initial idea about you know, taking the laser out of uh, a laser sintering machine, replacing it with, with print heads uh, and, and lamps, and then uh, producing parts in that way. 
Um, so yeah, I had, as, as I remember being told before, in order to think outside of the box, it helps to first understand the box. So I think I understood the box that was rapid prototyping pretty well, but then I needed to, that was the basis from which I could then expand and, and with some confidence take forward the idea of, of really taking powder-based fusion to a different level by, by using uh, print heads. And in terms of, you, obviously you, you were coming at it with this, um north star of going into manufacturing did you through the conversations you would have either in, in academia or, or with the commercial side of the industry did you sense there was even at that stage a a desire to go in that direction or or would you say that most of the market was pretty satisfied with with rapid prototyping as it was yeah that, that's a really good question sam um what i found was there was a very polarized opinion I was, bear in mind at this point, I guess I was, I was an early stage academic around the year 2000, 2001, and I published this, this whole idea about using laser sintering as an example to, to print parts going in, into, into the thousands. So, you know, it, it seemed for small complicated parts, maybe 10,000 parts. Um, and I proposed this idea and, and honestly, um, the majority of people looked at it and, and said, you know, this is a, an academic, you know, really doesn't understand the real world. This is never going to happen. And many times I had you know, colleagues, it was a small industry and we were all generally pretty honest with each other. And I had plenty of people come and said, you know, Neil, this is never going to happen. You know, it's just, you know, this is process with a rapid prototyping industry is, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, conversely, there were a few people, particularly on the sales side, who looked at the idea of, of having, you know, large rooms filled with 10 or 20 printers. And naturally, they rubbed their hands at the prospect because that didn't exist at that time. Um, so those people <laughs> embraced it because, uh, they, you know, they really wanted it to be true. Um, but in the end, you know, that has become true. Um, but the vast majority of people, when I presented this idea at first, just really just felt it would it was you know in, in the politest possible terms they didn't think it was realistic shall we say mm. and so at that time as you mentioned you've you've identified that you want to put print heads and, and lamps in your in your machine um and i think it's is it 2003 that a, a patent is filed and 2005 it's granted or yeah yeah so yeah exactly so the way the patent came out was because i'd identified this this opportunity to manufacture with laser sintering but when i broke down the costs to make a part by laser sintering there were three elements to the cost one was the cost of the material one was the cost of the labor to to pretty much to clean the part and the other one was the machine depreciation cost you know you spend a lot of money on the machine you write it off over let's say five years you know that adds a fair amount of cost to the part that you're making and it was that latter element the machine depreciation that i really wanted to address so it was a pretty systematic approach where i looked at it and thought can you make a laser sintering machine quicker um, and ideally also cheaper to make um, to reduce that uh, that element of machine depreciation and that's where the idea of, of using print heads and lamps um, instead of lasers came in um, and actually, uh, again, I go back to my my then supervisor, Phil Dickens, we had um, some funding from the UK government, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, effectively a block of money, which was there at Loughborough University to say, you know, if you've got new ideas, have a go. Um, don't go through the whole quite lengthy process of applying for funding. There was money effectively there. 
So we've got an initial you know, internal application turned around in two or three weeks to get £50,000 to do some initial work. Um, and I remember Phil's words, words were, look, the money's there, come up with some good ideas. And um, so I came up with the idea for replacing the laser with the printheads, actually whilst walking um, on the canal on the way to, by the canal on the way to the gym and um, with with Phil's words ringing in my ears, you know, come up with some good ideas. So I was lucky the opportunity was there to have some some um, funding available to develop something. And it happened to coincide with a time in which I was thinking about how to make um, you know, powder bed process is much quicker. So that that's where the ideas spawned from. And the first pat and the patent application, um, the first one was in July 2003. Um, and then we went through a, a series of work. And actually, really, the first reduction to practice of the technology was when we took an old um, laser sintering machine, uh, took the laser out, put print heads in its place. Um, printed and fused and that was in 2005 we, we did that and um, actually um, we pretty quickly turned parts around and were making parts in, in you know probably two weeks after getting the, the print heads when we first put the print heads into the machine so yeah we had a very quick progress once we would got the print heads in, into the old laser sintering machine. So in terms of when you've done that, when you've got the printheads in the in the laser sintering machine, what what were the biggest differences between parts that had been printed with a laser and parts that had been printed using your printhead system? Well, well, the most obvious one at first that you could see was the colour of the parts were grey. So we were printing black um, uh, ink fluid uh, on, onto white powder and it creates a grey part. Um, other than that, it was pretty similar. Okay. Uh, of course, when we first started, as as anyone who's worked with powder bed fusion knows, you're going to get challenges like material curling up in the powdered bed, or you over bake it and you just make you know a really big chunk of of, of white powder and you can't even see the part inside. Of course, we went through all of those kind of things, but but we we fought through them pretty quickly. Um, in terms of the feature resolution, it was pretty much the same. Ultimately, it was determined by the, the, the size of the powder particles and they were the same. We were just using standard laser sintering material. So um, the feature resolution, the strength of the parts, again, was pretty quickly uh, up to the level of, of laser sintering. Um, so, yeah, really, the, the most obvious difference was the colour of the parts because we were using black ink uh, on white powder. OK, and so eventually um, the technology starts to get licensed out so between where we're where we're at now where you where you're you're going through the, the patent process and and when you you're able to license the technology out what are the what are the kind of improvements that you're you're working through and what are the what's the development of that technology look like at that time yeah, so um, being an academic institution, we're also keen to to get lots of things out there in terms of publishing. That's 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 part of what you do. So we tried lots of different materials, for example. So the standard material would be would be laser centered PA12, but we also tried PA11, uh, various elastomer kind of materials, and so on, because we knew that doing different materials would take us in, in would take the technology into different applications. And would, uh, apart from being something that could be published, would also be something that would add value to, uh, you know, the licensed IP that we were able to 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 um, to license out. Um, so there was a lot of that. The other key thing was, um, okay, so we've taken a a laser sintering machine and 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 put print heads on there. Initially, it was just one print head, so we printed up the middle. So a big other step was then to to rack five print heads side by side, so you could print across the whole bed. 
Um, that was a pretty major step, being able to do that um, uh, reliably. Um, but then probably the major one was building a machine from the ground up. Um, and that happened not until 2011. Um, again, it was down to getting some funding, which we had um, through uh, through Loughborough University. Well, we had a relatively modest amount of money, but it allowed us to build a machine from the ground up where we could um, you know, create a system without piggybacking on the back of a, a, a laser sintering machine. And part of the reason for that was we knew that when going to license this technology, you know, it'd be quite reasonable for um, you know, any company looking to get a license to say, well, this is all fine, but you, you've, you know, all you've done is piggybacked on 15, 20 years of laser sintering technology. You know, it's going to be a different proposition to, to do this all from scratch. And actually, that's a pretty reasonable point. Um, so we wanted to, uh, uh, you know, get that question out of the way and build a machine ourselves up from scratch, which we did, as I say, for a relatively modest amount of, of funding. And, and that, to me, I think was the main catalyst in terms of taking it from research into a commercially attractive solution. That was really the point when we could demonstrate that machine built from the ground up, making really nice parts. That's when we were able to, uh, you know, really... I say go from from the research phase into the commercial phase. And so how long did that take from when you began the research to when you 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 had licensed the technology out for the first time? So um, actually, there were some uh, early licenses uh, that, okay. that were in place that, that didn't quite work out um, in uh, shortly after 2005, the initial uh, reduction to practice. Um, but there were just you know various things just happened along the way and in the end we had to sort of uh, get out of those license agreements um and, and it was in 2011 when we became free of, of of that licensing uh situation that we were able to then license more freely so it's sort of in, in parallel we, we the legal side liberated us to license in a way that we hadn't been able to before and also the technical side uh we'd got to a you know a a proof of concept without having to piggyback on the back of um, laser centering. And that, and that was 2011 when we were first in a position to, to do that. And then it still took another three, four years um, before we started uh, you know, closing deals on, on licenses. Talk to me about that. It's a fairly long, I think, R&D journey um, in terms of, you know, going through all of those 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 things in terms of technology mishaps and, and overcoming those challenges and then the licensing things. Talk to me about what it took for you and your, your colleagues at the university to kind of persevere and keep going with this technology and and overcoming those those hurdles as they as they came about. Yeah, so the, the, um, I think anyone who develops a new technology will incur all sorts of challenges. Um, you know, and the challenges we had sometimes we're non-technical and sometimes we're technical. I mean, so on the non-technical side, we had things like, um, you know, objections to the patent. I actually had to go and defend the patents in The Hague, um, you know, so that, that's really up there in ter terms of a journey. Um, and as I said, there were the challenges on some of the, the, the you know, the, the side of, of licensing and so on. Um, we also had a fair amount of, you know, I say there was still some scepticism as to whether this would work. The whole notion of putting a print head you know, in this hot environment, I think people struggle to believe it. In fact, when I first set about putting print heads in, in a laser central machine, I, I called many different uh, print head suppliers and said, you know, do your print heads operate in a hot environment? And all of them said yes, 
with the caveat that hot is less than 50 degrees centigrade. Now, the problem I had was that I really wanted to make parts with standard, you know, laser sintering materials, PA12, which melts, you know, uh, you know, in the region of 190 degrees centigrade. And, you know, there was, no, you know, I, we don't want our print heads anywhere near any of that. But, you know, one exception, and I give credit to them, was Zar, who said, well, we don't know if this is going to work, but we'll prepare to give it a try. Um, and, and I think it was, it was convincing them um, was it was an important part of the journey. So that was one where there's a certain amount of convincing to be done, but also for, for them to to you know, have confidence in their own technology, which is confidence that subsequently has proved well founded. So there are challenges along those uh, lines, but there are also sort of almost uh, quite amusing uh, technical challenges that occurred. One being when we actually first put printheads into the laser sintering machine. So bear in mind, I'd spent a good year or so speaking with printhead companies who all said, you know, never put your printhead in a hot environment. So what we did when we when we um, you know, unhooked the laser from that laser sintering machine, we, we took the cooling water that normally is used to cool the laser. We plumbed it in to go on a cooling block behind the back of the printhead because we really wanted to keep this printhead cool. So then we fired up the machine, got it all warmed up, ready, um, set off the, the, the cooling to keep the printhead cool because we knew we had to do that. And actually what we did before we ever even printed is we fried the printhead, not because it got too hot, but because it got too cold. We, we, we made it so cold with this uh, cooling from, from the, the laser system that actually um, water sort of vapor um, condensed on the surface of the circuit boards and short circuited. So we, we've put all of this effort into solving a problem that wasn't really as bad as we thought it was. Um, and so, yeah, there are technical challenges that sometimes self-made. And uh, if there's anything I've learned from that is, you know, only you know, address a technical challenge when you absolutely know it really is a technical challenge. Sometimes you can perceive things to be challenges when, when in truth, perhaps they're not. So, Zar then, um, we first met uh, in March 2017. It was actually my first assignment outside of the TST offices. Um, and Zar had an open day to, to show some of the work that you've been doing since you joined them, I think, it's like January 2016. Uh, correct. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us about how how that came about in terms of you um, joining ZAR, um, ZAR 3D, that business, and and what the purpose was of, of that stage of the development of this technology. Yeah, so um, so we wind back. My first engagement with ZAR had been trying to convince a printhead manufacturer to, to uh, put their printheads in this hot, in, hot, dusty environment. And so Zar um, had, had given it a go and, and so on. So I'd had a, you know, from this was back in 2004 kind of time frame, developed a, a good relationship with Zar over that period of time. And, and Zar had sponsored PhDs and the like with me in, in the subsequent years. Um, and um, in, in those years, uh, I say I, I developed a strong relationship with Zar. And then by 2015, um, you know, we're at the point where licenses were out. We've been able to complete a number of licenses for for the high speed sintering technology, and uh, it was time for me at that point to go and join a company who was um, licensing the technology. You know, I, I enjoyed the fact that I got the technology to the point of licensing, but I didn't want to sort of cast it adrift and let it all go. I, I was I just wanted to be involved in it. So I was at a point where I had a number of different companies who either had or were planning to get licenses for the technology or who, who were offering me uh, an, an opportunity uh, to go and work with them. 
And it came very left field when when Zar came up to see me and said, Neil, why don't you come and join us? And and that seemed a strange thing at the time because Zar make print heads, not 3D printers. But it turned out at the time that that um, uh, Doug, Doug Edwards, the new CEO at Zar at that time, wanted to expand Zar's um, activities going beyond just making print heads, but also downstream into making printers, specifically 3D printers, and specifically based on the technology that uh, Zar had become familiar with uh, by working with me. So I thought that was a great opportunity. Um, Zar, first of all, a very well-run company, and I'd, I'd been able to see that from working with them for many years. Um, they'd also understood the whole notion of, of going from uh, conventional printing to digital printing and that uh, which have the same business driver analogies as going from, shall we say, injection molding to 3D printing or, or all the things about you know, scaling up and whilst being agile and so on. So so there's a good fit there. And also um, because I go back to the point that a lot of this um, work that I'd done had been funded by the UK government, by the UK taxpayer. So it just felt right to go and work for a UK company, Zara based in Cambridge, UK. And it felt right to go and work for a company there and, and build up value that would uh, help to pay back at least some part of um, of the of the funding that I'd received from the public purse previously. So as I say, had at first seen a bit of a left field option to, to go and join because they at that time weren't manufacturers of printers but you know, once i understood their desire to make printers then it was obvious and so my remit was to go and set up a business within czar a new business um that that made uh, printers based on the technology that i'd invented and, and and so that's effectively what i did and then um at some point stratus started to invest incrementally in in czar 3d as a business um can you, I guess, can you tell me at that point before before Stratasys completed a full acquisition, what yep. was their what was their role as they had like a ten percent stake and a twenty percent stake and then a forty percent stake? What would what would their what would their interest in the technology? But did they have any hands on role in in what you were doing at that point? Yeah, so um, so l- l- taking the timeline here, so I joined Zara in, in twenty sixteen. Um, uh, and during 2016, I, I got lucky. Actually, there was a, a, a group of people from Copenhagen who had had they'd been part of a company called Blueprinter that had developed a desktop powder bed system. They hadn't worked commercially for them, but they'd developed a, a lot of skills uh, in terms of making powder bed uh, printing machines. And so we joined together to set up this business within Zar to to make um uh, this powder bed high speed sintering machine as we referred to it at the time. Um, so we set up within Zart to, to form this business. As we started progressing, it became obvious to us we could build up the sales of, of these printers under a Zar brand um, and build that whole sales capability up organically. Or we could partner with someone else, another organization that has a you know, global sales capability and reach the market much, much more quickly. So we didn't have to look too far. You know, uh, fortunately, I was well, uh, I was well versed in the industry. You know, clearly Stratus has had you know, the biggest sales channel out there. If we could convince Stratus to partner with us, this was going to be a good thing. Um, and then actually another moment of luck came in um, at this point. It, I was in January 2017. We had just started building our first prototype with, with our colleagues in Copenhagen. 
And um, I happen to be on a trip uh, to, to Israel, Rehovot, at the Stratasys headquarters. And totally by chance, Scott Crump, founder of Stratasys, was in the building. Uh, he and I had actually gone back many years and had spoken over many years on many different topics. But so we took this ad hoc, completely spontaneous opportunity to go out for uh, dinner. So myself and Scott and also Guy Menchik, who is now the CTO um, at Stratasys, that they we went to dinner together and effectively I pitched this idea saying look we're developing this printer within Tsar we could go out and sell it ourselves or we could partner up with with someone like Stratasys um what do you think and essentially they they warmed to the idea um and over many discussions um occasional dinners out and so on um over a period of time uh that they, they were convinced this was the right thing to do and and probably that the key moment was about 11 months later, in November 2017, Scott and Guy came over to Copenhagen to see our first prototype machine, showed its workings. They got to understand about the team developing it, including you know, looking at the previous technology they'd worked on and so on, You know, really understanding the, the, the ethic um, and, and, and thinking behind the team as well as the technology they were developing. So they did you know, Guy and Scott, were, I was really impressed with their due diligence. You know, they, they went into great detail. And, and and they you know really bought into what we were doing and so six months after that um Stratasys uh invested 15 percent into what was effectively a joint venture at this point so we called it czar 3d which was uh 15 Stratasys 85 percent czar uh Stratasys then had various options to increase their um ownership um and actually they, they accelerated that much quicker than we had originally uh intended or expected um, and by November 2021, uh, Stratasys had fully acquired uh, the Czar 3D business and, and our, our teams in Copenhagen and also in, in Nottingham, UK, became um, fully fledged uh, parts of uh, Stratasys. And then, so it, I think it was it was sometime before the, the acquisition was completed that there was, Stratasys had announced its intention to launch products based on on your technology. I'm not sure whether it was called Selective Absorption Fusion when it was announced earlier that year, but it, it becomes Selective Absorption Fusion or SAF. So can you tell us about the the name change and what 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 kind of led you in that direction? Was yeah. it a technology evolution? Was it a, a consciousness of there being licenses out in the market? What was the what was the yeah. driving factor there? It's, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, in short, it was, it was, it was an evolution of our sort of technology and, and our understanding of the economics. So so just bear with me as I explain a little bit about this. The whole original concept behind the high-speed sintering was, was to make powder bed fusion processes quicker um, by by printing and, and, and then irradiating with, with a lamp rather than having a, a laser scanning sequentially. And, and that actually is you know, still you know, a, a good idea. But then as we started looking into it in more depth and certainly considering, um, you know, manufacturing rather than prototyping, um, you know, our team at, at Zar 3D, which then subsequently uh, became a part of Stratasys, clearly recognised that actually there's more than just speed uh, when it comes to um, being cost effective. For example, if you can get greater control of your process thermally, um, and you can produce parts of higher accuracy um, and higher yield, 
then actually commercially that's very attractive. If you can work with a powder bed that you don't have to heat up quite as much as you might otherwise need to, then that means you don't age the powder so much so you can recycle more powder. That's obviously good environmentally, but it also is good economically. So we recognised that there were multiple other commercial levers, like being able to recycle more powder, um, like having a higher yield from the parts that you make, that actually contributed to the cost of a part um, every bit as much as the throughput of the machine. So we started looking in a far more you know, nuanced way um, in terms of how you can make a process work. It doesn't necessarily necessarily just have to be go big to go quick. Um, so uh, we developed this system whereby we had two sleds, one that prints and fuses, and then a following sled that deposits powder just afterwards. That gave us a, a, you know, a unique in the industry consistency of the experience of each particle as it gets fused in terms of when it gets fused, when it receives its next layer of powder. That is an identical time and, and a very uniform thermal experience, which, which you know, is, is unique in this industry. And that, that consistency um, then ultimately manifests itself in, in, in greater accuracy, greater consistency of parts over the bed, et cetera. And, and strangely enough, what it meant was that actually when, when our carriages went right to left, they did nothing. Um, and to me at first, I was thinking, wow, this is just completely not what I had in mind with this technology at first. It's all about high throughput, high throughput, high throughput. But And we were actually intentionally not going so high speed and doing high throughput because we knew that commercially, actually, your, your cost per part could be lower if you focused more on consistency and yield. So we then looked at the naming of this and thought, well, actually, we are not um, prioritizing high speed here. We're actually prioritizing consistency over high speed and, and for perfectly good reasons, um, ultimately, to, you know, to make the cost of the part, you know, uh, as, as low as is possible and therefore find our place into to high volume applications. So it didn't seem appropriate <clears throat> to call it high speed sintering. High speed sintering was the time that I had been using myself for oh, since 2003. Um, but you really are thinking had evolved significantly beyond that and it didn't seem appropriate to use that term. So we, in, in the end, we felt that selective absorption fusion, and of course, we, we use the term fusion, not sintering, because that actually is a better um, descriptor of what's happening with the particles. And, and that's how, how we came about it. So we dropped the high speed because that wasn't our, our primary focus, even though the throughput is very high compared with, with you know, many other comparable processes. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we dropped the high speed and, and we and we put the word fusion in there and selective absorption fusion uh, really characterised uh, the technology um, pretty well, we thought. And the, the machine that has you know, packaged that technology that has been brought out onto the market is the H350 system. Um, so tell us about the, I guess, the commercialisation of that product and part of the big part of the reason why, you know, your your aligned with Stratasys was their their go to market. So talk to me about getting it out onto the market and the adoption of this technology over the first couple of years. Yeah. So firstly, um, so so Saf, yes, our first machine on the market is the H three fifty. 
I just I'll just point out um, the H doesn't actually stand for Hopkinson. Um, there have been <laughs> questions about that. Um, but but uh, um, but yeah, getting the, mach the, the the machine out to market, uh, not just about the, the, the naming of, of, of the machine and so on. It's been for me a really interesting process. You know, bear in mind I spent most of my career in, in academia, and so there's this whole new set of stuff that that, that is uh, absolutely fascinating to see. So getting the product out to market, you know, even before we'd actually fully become part of Stratasys, we knew that it was going to be a Stratasys branded product. Um, and it, then there's you know, a huge process to go through. There's the, 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 the product lifecycle management process about going through various different gates, you know, how you position the product, you know, where it sits in the, in the market and so on. But there are also sorts of things like logistics. You know, where do you have your global warehouses? What about availability of materials after sales? What about having um, uh, a trained uh, uh, force of people out there to, to, to go and install the machines or, or to go and uh, provide some kind of fix if something goes wrong? And at times I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of almost sat back and watched, you know, in astonishment at, at the scale of the operation globally. It's it's really something I, I honestly didn't have any idea about, um, you know, when I've been on the other side as, as a user of the technology and so on. So there, there's a huge amount of work to do there. And, you know, seeing the professionalism of, of people from the operations side, marketing, you know, the nuances of how you get a message out there, sales and so on. Um, and, and their different sort of tactical approaches. You know, there's been all of these different uh, kind of things to consider. W one aspect I find really interesting, and this surprises people, is accountancy. Looking at the profit and loss, I find that absolutely fascinating how that all works. Um, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm very driven by the economics as much as the engineering. Um, and all of these things are, it's just this sort of a huge, uh, vast range of, of different functions come into play and get pulled together. And it's just been, you know, I say completely fascinating to watch <clears throat> and to play my own little part of. It's also been humbling. Many, many times I've sat in rooms <clears throat> surrounded by people um, of, you know, who are you know, accountants, you know, marketing, HR, and they're all, you know, putting their time, effort and intelligence you know, into this technology that I, that I invented uh, a number of years ago. It's been uh, yeah, quite something to be part of and to see that and, and really great to be you know, a part of that team. Before I go on to my next question, are you able to tell us what right. the H stands for? So in, in truth, the H stands for is, is a letter that hadn't been used. Um, one of, so when you look at um, the, the strategy portfolio, of products they use a, they tend to use a letter you know for the technology one of the challenges you get when you have multiple different technologies is you start running out of letters okay and, and in the in the end the h was sort of like a little bit of a tip to the original high speed centering uh kind of thing there but honestly um uh it was it, we we didn't want to use s because that was sort of used elsewhere mm -hmm. um and so um we we, we went for h Maybe it was maybe it was Hopkinson, and I just didn't realise it. <laughs> maybe. Um, what do you what do you see as the kind of key markets and, and industries for this technology? I know a few service providers have, have adopted the technology. I've seen a consumer product application out there. What, what would you say is the you know the 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 best place for this technology? Yeah. So um, actually, one of the challenges with, with a technology that can fit into so many different places. <clears throat> 
is identifying the best ones for it. And what I've seen so far, I'd probably pick out two areas. First one is um, not actually a particular vertical, but almost like a technology starting to replace, and, and that's replacing CNC machined parts. So often um, parts are CNC machined from aluminium um, for use in, in, in all manner of different products, often industrial kind of products. And what we're seeing now is examples of companies who are of great heritage in CNC machining, and they're beginning to see how they can actually start to supply their customers, not with a CNC machined part, but with a printed SAF part. Um, it just gives their customers you know, a chance to make lighter parts, but also have design freedom and a cost point they could never, ever have achieved with CNC machining. So, so that's one area, and it would predominantly be for things like medical equipment, industrial equipment, and so on. And, and, and I say that is you know, replacing CNC machine parts. But if we look at a particular vertical that, that's adopted the technology so far, and it's a little bit to my surprise, if I'm honest, um, it's been automotive. Uh, if we look at the automotive users, um, there have been many cases from, including the sort of the low volume sports cars, but also we're seeing you know, applications in you know, you know standard uh, you know household brands um, you know cars who are making, in some cases, tens of thousands of parts by SAF. Um, they're often doing so you, through their supply chain, so that they, they may not be running the machines themselves, but they, they will go to a, a company, what we would historically call the bureau, but I think we now need to start thinking of as being, you know, tier one suppliers. Actually, they just happen to be making parts layer by layer rather than by molding. Um, and, and we're seeing more and more uh, a number of cases, in particularly in automotive, where tens of thousands of parts um, are being made by SAF technology. And um, to finish off, Neil, and uh, thank you for your for your time and for taking me through all of this today. You're, you're the, obviously the the inventor of of the SAF process, but you know these processes are, are just a means to making parts. So, what would you say has been the most gratifying application story so far? Yeah, so um, so the, you're right. The processes are just a means to making parts. And by the way, the parts are a means to making money. OK, <laughs> and I, I think my, my, my favourite application lies very much around that, um, you know, to see our customers being able to make, you know, really good business, make great profits is, is great. And probably the best example actually comes from Stratasys Direct Manufacturing. So even though it's actually from within the Stratasys business, they act, uh, you know, very independently and, and manufacture using a range of different additive and, and other technologies as is fit. Now, they had an example where they're making um, some cooling ducts for, for NASCAR. <clears throat> they had um, an order for a few hundred of, of, of these, these ducts. And, and the ducts were relatively big for SAF, actually. You, you could only fit two into the bed at a time. Um, so they had to do a few hundred builds of these. <clears throat> but what I really liked about their approach here <clears throat> was they, they had a standard build where they had two of these ducts you know, in standard position within the bed. But then with all the spare space around it, they build it up, that spare space up with other parts so that from build one to build two, the position of uh, within the build of the ducts remained the same. But the types of parts around them were very different from build to build. Um, and so what it meant was they were doing this sort of hybrid of doing 
additive manufacturing, series production of, of the duct parts, but also doing prototyping or response to small volume manufacturing um, with the rest of the space. And that really struck me because I'd, I had always considered that you'd use the technology either for prototyping and, and doing, you know, every build is different, or for series manufacture where every build is the same. And actually what they were doing was a hybrid of the two. And what that then provided them with the opportunity, most importantly, was to come up with a new business model that was very, uh, allowed them to, to sell parts at a very um, uh, attractive price for their customers, but at the same time, make a, a, a good profit um, for themselves. So to me, that's, you know, when you've, allowed a you know really good business where everyone along the supply chain wins to me that's success and, and i think that 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 nascar plus random other parts around them example is probably the best exemplar that i've seen for for, for this technology